Luke 21, beginning at verse 25, we read the following. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you know it. Excuse me. Before they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Amen. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, congregation uh, is at the temple. We've been here for the last few weeks. Uh, for those of you who are joining us anew uh, today, and uh, we began a few weeks ago with Jesus uh, teaching at the temple. You remember the initial uh, subject was that of giving and uh, the widow was observed giving her two mites and she gave more than them all. So after that, the, the disciples are walking about. Matthew actually says in his account that they were kind of leaving the temple at that time. And as they were heading out, the disciples begin to admire the building and begin to say, you know, look how lovely everything is and the structure and the ornate architecture, etc., and uh, Jesus used that as an opportunity to talk about the destruction that was coming upon the temple in particular, but also upon Jerusalem itself. Now, in Matthew's account, Luke tends to condense things a little bit more than Matthew does. Matthew draws this out a little bit more. And so you get more detail in Matthew. Matthew says that you get back to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples used that as an opportunity. Maybe they had some privacy there. 
And they're still a little stunned by what they heard while they were at the temple about Jesus saying not one stone is going to be left on another. And so they uh, go to him and ask Jesus, when is this going to happen? I mean, this is a big deal. The destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, this is this is the locus of the worship that takes place in in the life of Israel. This is the center of all piety and preaching. And this is the place where the sacrifices are given that that point us to Jesus. And so they say, when is this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming and of your kingdom? And really what we've been studying for the last few weeks is simply that just by way of review. First of all, Jesus gives an introduction kind of to this answer Gives a little bit of a preface before he directly answers, when's this going to happen? He says, well, keeping a few things in mind before we get to your question. Number one, don't lose your theology. Keep your head on on your shoulders because there are going to be some false messiahs popping up who are going to be saying, follow me. And he said, don't follow them because they're not me. And then after that, he says, not only should you keep your theological head about you, but keep your emotional head about you. Don't get hysterical. Uh, Don't panic. You know, to put it in modern day, don't be a Calvinist. You know, believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, Don't, you know, Calvinists, this this is one of the things that we're supposedly known for, is we tend not to lose our heads when... You know, the the old story that out west, there was some calamity going on in the old town out west and everybody's running around, the you know, and two guys pass each other and they notice each other is kind of relatively calm. They turn around, they look at each other, notice that they saw the same thing in each other. And one of them says to him, what's the chief end of man? (laughs) And the other guy said, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He knew. He said, I knew you were a catechism man. So Jesus is saying, you know, don't panic uh, in the in the midst of it all uh, and and recognize, though, that there is going to be persecution um, in in the midst of this time. The early church is going to suffer surprisingly at times, even from family and friends, tragically. Now, last week, you'll remember that we saw Jesus gave some very practical uh, wisdom for the early church. And that is, this is where Jesus really begins to answer the question. You know, when's this going to happen? When, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And, and Jesus says, when you see the Gentiles coming in the tens of thousands, then you know it's time to go. And you need to go quickly. And if you've got stuff in the house, forget it. Just go. If you're in the field... And you see the armies coming and you see the banners coming of the Gentiles. Then then go. He was on the rooftop. Let him not go into the house to get stuff out and leave. And so Jesus says to the early church, they need to recognize that will be the sign that, as John Calvin says, God is going to surrender Jerusalem into the hands of the Gentiles. He will not protect it as he did in the days of Hezekiah. But it will be as it was in the days of, of Babylon, in the days of Zedekiah. When Zedekiah, you remember, was overcome by Nebuchadnezzar. And 
Zedekiah has to watch his children slaughtered in front of him. And then once, can you imagine the last thing you see is your children being put to death and then uh, his own eyes are put out. And the city is destroyed, the wall is broken down and the temple is destroyed. Well, here we are from, that was in 586 B.C. Now here we are in 30 A.D., 30 A.D. plus, And Jesus says that within one generation, this is going to happen again. And that God's going to bring a destruction on it. Now, so he gives very practical advice to the church. And and in fact, we know historically that the early church heeded the, the prophecy of Jesus. We know the early church actually did heed the words of Christ here in this chapter and in Matthew 24. And they did get out because they knew what was coming. And a lot of Jews didn't. They were counting on God to save them and save the city. And and God did not. And it's historically, it's actually one of the worst events ever. Uh, when you read the particulars of the destruction of Jerusalem, a devastating judgment. Um, you know, one, one, one theologian said 9-11 pales in comparison to what happened on AD 70 in Jerusalem. Now, we come to this next section here, and um, I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to give you the two main ways of interpreting this. I told the elders back in the back room here, I said, I may make nobody happy today, (laughs) because I'm going to try to make my best case for both views here. This is this is this next section here, verse 25, really down through 28 is where, even in Reformed circles, we get differences of opinion. Um, and, and the two opinions are this. Number one, this is possibly the second coming of Christ being described here. Or number two, this is a continuation of the dialogue that has already begun, and Jesus is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in apocalyptic language. Uh, this view is sometimes called the preterist view. Uh, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist, or sometimes called preterism. Meaning it's already been fulfilled. Comes from the Latin. For you Latin students out there. Um, that, that it has already been fulfilled. So, let's look at the. I want you to look with me, and I'm going to try and... I'm going to try and give you the strongest arguments for both sides, okay? And, you know, you say, well, where are you on this issue? I think I I don't hold all of my theological opinions with the same degree of certainty. Okay, let me say that. Um, You know, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, I'm a 10 out of 10 on that. Okay? (laughs) On this, I don't know, I'm a five on, on this, okay? As to ten being, I absolutely, I'm going to die on that hill, okay? And, and you know, one, zero, I'm going to surrender at the least amount of resistance. Um, you know, I, I am not certain. I think 20 plus years ago, I would have told you I'm a preterist on this. Now... I'm not certain. I feel some of the weight of these verses speaking to the second coming as well. So um, 
I, man, it's, it's hard to go against Calvin. And Calvin says this doesn't apply to, this, to, to AD 70. But then Sinclair Ferguson's one of my living heroes, and he says that this is AD 70. <laughs> and so does Sproul. Uh, so my, my teachers, that I, the teachers I love best in seminary, uh, lean toward the preterist position here. Let me, let's just go over these and, and, and go verse by verse and why different people land in different places on this. So verse 25, let's read together. I'm reading from the New American Standard. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, some of your folks who would take this as referring to the second coming, well, they would say, well, look, you need to take this in a more literal interpretation. Okay, and, and this is where, you know, a lot of times our theological disagreements often come down to how figuratively or literally should we understand this? And so there, there are those who would say, well, look, there's been no there were no literal signs of, of the sun and the moon and the stars at the time of the 80s destruction. I mean, there there was at Jesus's death on the cross. We know that the sun was blotted out in a. And a supernatural darkness enveloped Jesus while he was on the cross. And we know that there was earthquakes and that people who literally were dead in those graves, in those tombs, rose miraculously from the dead at the the death of Jesus Christ. But we don't have that for A.D. 70. And so some would say that this this is speaking to something beyond A.D. 70. This has to be understood in, in the terms of something far more cataclysmic. And so they would apply verse 25 to the second coming. Now, people would say, well, how can you go speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem? And clearly, that's what we were talking about in verse 24. I mean, I don't think it can get, you know, less clear than Jerusalem be trampled underfoot by Gentiles. Now, when you see the armies coming... Uh, you know, run for your life. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize, and, and, and he's speaking there to his disciples. Okay, he, he's speaking there. He said, you know, you men of this generation need to know certain truths that are going to take place within a generation. So the, what the preterists do is they say, see, that is continuing on in verse 25. And that Jesus is still doing that. Now, let's just, I'm going to take the preterist view and explain it, and then I'm going to take the second coming view. All right, so how do, how do the preterists deal with these signs, the celestial signs? Well, they do have a point that in the Bible, when the Bible would speak prophetically, it would use apocalyptic language, the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood. We see this, for example, when... Um, the, the prophets spoke about that and we saw it fulfilled on Pentecost. Remember Joel? Joel speaks about the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood. And Peter said, hey, this is fulfilled. This passage is being fulfilled right here as the Holy Spirit's being poured out. So that the, 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 the sun and the moon and the stars in the Bible sometimes refer to powers. Uh, Think about Joseph's dream. Here's another example. Joseph's dream. Remember, what was one of Joseph's dreams, boys and girls? Well, that the the stars 
you know, of his siblings, his brothers would bow down to his star. And then his parents, right? The sun and the moon would bow down to him. Remember that? So sometimes, sometimes the, the scriptures would speak in terms of powers. And so it's a way of describing that the judgment of God upon the earthly powers of, of Jerusalem are taking place. A tremendous historical judgment is taking place. And the language that is being used here is a figurative language to speak of a cataclysmic event. Um, then look at uh, verse 26. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And now verse 27. Now, a lot of people who you know, grew up thinking this has to be the second coming. Uh, would look at verse 27 because they would say this. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And a lot of folks would say, well, hey, how can you preterists even think that this is speaking about A.D. 70? I mean, right there it says the Son of Man is going to be coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Well, what the preterist position is this. It doesn't say, first of all, the son of man, that phrase is what Jesus used of himself. It's interesting that the New Testament never seems to speak of Jesus as the son of man speaking of him. It was what Jesus spoke of himself. Here is Christ saying the son of man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And what the preterists will say about this verse is it never says he's coming down. In that cloud with great glory. What does it say? It simply says that the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And what the preterist argument is this. What is Jesus saying? The Son of Man is coming in cloud. It's a reference to Daniel 7. And if, and, 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 and if you look at Daniel chapter 7, what did Daniel see? Daniel saw the Son, one like the Son of Man... He is coming, but he's not coming down. He is coming up to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is giving him a kingdom. And so what the preterists say here is in verse 27, this this coming of the Son of Man, it is Christ coming to the Ancient of Days. That is, after Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead. He appears unto men over a period of 40 days. And then what? He goes and sits at the right hand of the father in fulfillment of Daniel seven. And that what you have here in verse 27 here is Jesus saying that this event, this destruction of the old covenant ceremonial temple. Will be a sign of the son of man having received a kingdom from his father. And exercising judgments against those who rejected the Son of Man in his appearance. And then, one of the, probably one of the key verses here that the preterists then use in this section is found in verse 32. And this too is probably one of the strengths of the preterist argument. Where we see, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, some, particularly dispensationalists, 
want to take that word, which in the English is translated here, generation, and say, oh, no, that should be translated as race. Meaning as long as the Jews are in existence. Uh, But the trouble is there are other Greek words that should or could have been used. Probably is best translated here as generation. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Meaning that everything above verse 32 is included in the things that will happen within that generation. Does everybody see that or have I lost you and confused you? Okay. What the preterist view is. Jesus has been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, he said that this temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And the preterist position is that verses 25 through 28 continue that theme of the destruction of Jerusalem. That Christ is not speaking about the second coming here. Okay? That is not to say, and the preterist would say... If this language is used for the destruction of Jerusalem, because people say, well, then what's the application? There's no, you know, how can you apply this? Well, the application is if all of this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, then how much more in the second coming when God shall judge the living and the dead and that we should seek refuge in Christ? But I'll speak more about that in a moment. So there I'm kind of laying out that position. Now, let's look at it from the the second coming perspective. Okay, Christ has been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then you get the verse 25. Go back to verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, the moon and the stars, etc. So the predators say, well, how, how can you be talking about the second coming when the context here was the destruction of Jerusalem? The argument for the second coming is this, that sometimes the prophets in speaking about things that were near would what what is known as telescope. It's called, you know, prophetic telescoping would would telescope out. And and it it is just like it sounds just like a telescope, boys and girls. What do you do? You you know, you put your eye and you look in the lens and, and you see things that are far away. Right. Kind of like binoculars. And you can see clearly things that are in the distance. And so sometimes, for example, in the book of Isaiah, you know, Isaiah would be speaking about things related to the days of Hezekiah and then would jump out to things that we know from the New Testament are fulfilled by Christ and the birth of Christ. And so some want to make the case that that's what Jesus is doing here. Yes, the original context is about the destruction of Jerusalem. But in the midst of that prophecy, Jesus then is telescoping out to the second coming, to even a greater coming of the Lord. And so that these celestial signs in verse 25 uh, are not just apocalyptic language speaking about a great historical judgment, but is representative of the very end of history itself. And that verse 27, the coming of the cloud is actually the second coming of our Savior. And we note that in we find other places, you know, that the language is similar in first Thessalonians, chapter four, verse 15. 
Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So we do know that the Lord will come again in the second coming. And so those who look to this verse, verse 27, this coming in the clouds, they say that is referring to that final judgment. Then in verse 28, you have here, I think maybe something, you know, if the strength of the preterist maybe is found in verse 32, I think verse 28 is kind of strong for the idea of the second coming. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's, I think, harder to make the case of redemption drawing near in the judgment of Jerusalem. Now, what are we to make of all this? Let me see if I can bring you some applications. We always used to call them applications. I guess now we have to call them apps. Now, <laughs> let me give you the apps. Three of them today. Okay. I know we went through a lot of detail about preterism and the second coming of Christ. But let's net it out. Number one, either way, we're called to live eschatologically. We are called to live eschatologically as Christians. What does that mean, to live eschatologically? That means that we live our daily life with the eye to the fact that a new age has broken in with Christ and it will be consummated in the future. Now, whether you believe that the, that Luke 21 and Matthew 24 is speaking all of the events, speaking only to the events of AD 70, or whether you believe that it also has an eye to the second coming. In either way, we are called by this passage to live with an eye to the coming of the Lord. God comes in judgment upon nations and individuals at times historically, lest we as Augustine says, lest we despair and think that there's no justice ever to be found in the providence of God. But also we need to remind ourselves that even if this is a judgment in history, the greater judgment is coming. When we learn from the book of Revelation that men will call upon the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb of God who is coming. Now, what does this mean? Well, boys and girls, let me see if I can help you make some sense of this. Even you young children, when you live your life, because we are fallen in Adam, the tendency is to be consumed with two things. One, yourself and two, this world. That is that we tend to think. Chiefly, apart from the grace of God working in our life, we tend to think about ourselves and we tend to think about only this world. Now, by God's grace working in us, God breaks the dominion of that in our life. If we don't have Jesus Christ, we are in bondage to ourselves and we're in bondage to this world. We're slaves to to this life and to this world. That's why worldly people, that's all they think about is this world. 
They don't think much about eternity. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about what happens. Um, but when we when we come to Christ, a new reality breaks into our life. An eschatological reality breaks into our life. That is, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, the, the powers of the age to come in the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit break into my soul. And I'm delivered from this myopia where I focus only on this world and on myself. And now I see the truth of God's glory, that God is the creator of all and he is the sustainer of all. And this reality that he has sent his son to die for my sins and those who believe in him shall have eternal life. And now I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I live in this world, and we're going to see more about this tonight when Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer. I pray that you take them not out of this world. (laughs) I pray that there be no rapture. (laughs) Leave them in this world. But help them, Father, as they live in this world, to live as those who are of heaven. Even as Christ is of heaven, Jesus is not of this world, he said to Pilate. Are you a king? Yes, I am. But I'm not a king of this world. Don't you know I can put you to death, Pilate says? Don't you know you would have no authority except my father in heaven gave it to you? My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my guys would be taking out their swords and we'd be we'd be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. And and so we who are in this kingdom of Christ, we who have been uh, purchased by the blood of Christ, we who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, we have been brought from this world into the world of Christ and his kingdom. We live in a new world in Christ. I live and operate in Christ now. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I am still in this world, but I eschatologically am no longer of this world. And so we are like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and his friend as they're passing through Vanity Fair. You remember they go through Vanity Fair and and, and, and this town, Vanity Fair, is consumed with itself and all its amusements and its pleasures and all its sins and the things that debase. And they're walking through this and they, they feel this sense. So if you feel like you're alienated from this life and from this world, uh, you know, don't think that's strange. That's that is the norm for the Christian. We, we are aliens. We are citizens of another kingdom here. And, and that's why the things of this world cannot please us in, in the in the way and degree that it does worldly people, because we have tasted of heavenly powers of the ages to come. And and we operate and live out of this new life in Jesus Christ. Now, what this means practically, let me get back to you kids here. What this means for you boys and girls and for us all is, is this. I do everything I do in light of the reality that is broken into my life. For example, I get up in the morning. Maybe I get up and I get dressed and I go to the breakfast table. Now, there's nothing more mundane 
than getting up and going to the breakfast table and putting your Cheerios in the bowl and putting the milk in the bowl and eating your Cheerios, right? (laughs) And yet, Paul says that for us in Christ Jesus, even the most mundane of activities has been transformed. That whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it now to the glory of God. We live out this eschatological reality. I'm now even eating my Cheerios for the glory of God. It might look the same in many ways, but I'm operating out of a completely different principle now in Christ. Everything I do, everything I'm thinking, everything I'm trying to say, I am seeking more and more, and we do it inconsistently, we do it very imperfectly, and we... And we err in many ways, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to do everything in the light of a self-consciousness towards God. Ligonier Ministries used it as, you know, that Latin phrase as one of its slogans, in Coram Deo, before the face of God. I'm trying to do everything. I'm trying to think everything, say everything, do everything. As somebody who is conscious that God is with me. And so Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, even the most boring, mundane activities, we do it for God. I sleep for God. I eat for God. I work for God. I recreate. I play for God. I practice piano for God. I do my homework for God. I visit the elderly for God. I, I do everything for God. And, and so one of the things that we, and if we live out that life, one of the things, the, the, the coming of the Lord will not catch us completely by surprise. The more we practice that reality, the more you're awake. Um, running out of time. Application number two. Verse comes from verse thirty-four. Uh, not only should we, you live eschatologically, because the, you know the day of the Lord is coming. The, the day of the Lord may have already come for Jerusalem, and it is coming for you, wherever you fall on that. Number two. Therefore, what we ought to learn from this chapter is watch your own heart. Watch your own heart. Verse 34, Jesus says, here's Jesus's application. So this isn't just Boyd's application of this passage. Jesus here gives you the hortatory. Be on guard. That means it's a command, boys and girls. Be on guard. So your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Watch. Your heart. Well, what does that mean to watch your heart? What does Jesus mean? Obviously, here again, Jesus is speaking somewhat figuratively. We can't literally watch our heart without some kind of x-ray machine or something. But what he means is this. That is because Christ will delay or seemingly delay. Watch that you don't drift away from Jesus Christ in that intermediate period of time. 
And what does he say? That your hearts not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness. That is, watch your heart that you don't give yourself completely over to partying and pleasures. And that you're consumed with luxury and stuff for yourself. And then not only that, but also don't be careful of the pleasures, but also be careful of the worries. Notice that he's got both in view here. Watch out to the right and watch out to the left. On the one hand, watch out for the good times. Right. On the other hand, watch out for the things that are consuming cares, worries, pains, bills, work, stress. That you end up getting weighed down and you're forgetting to watch your heart. And that is that your spiritual condition ends up declining. And your spiritual condition can can decline through pleasure. But it can decline through consuming burdens and cares and responsibilities. You see, the, the problem with the. In Luke 15, the problem with the son of the of the father, the prodigal son and, and the older brothers. One didn't watch his heart with regard to pleasure and the other didn't watch his heart with regard to consuming cares. Neither of them were watching their heart. It's not just that one brother got away from the father. They, they were both alienated from the father. And then thirdly and finally. Watch and pray. Live eschatologically. Watch your heart. Thirdly, watch and pray. That is, you must exercise some effort. Verse 36, Jesus says, keep on the alert at all times. That's the watching. Praying that you may have strength to escape. Now, what does it mean to watch? I think what it means is to take Account of how you're doing spiritually to ask yourself, how am I doing and 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 to think and. And to itemize. And it's going to require some effort here. Jesus seems to indicate, he says, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you have strength to escape. There's going to be some effort. Now, how do you watch your heart? Well, there are a variety of ways you can do it. One is meditation. Um, I, I think one way to watch your heart is to meditate. Maybe it's another is to have close conversation with maybe, say, your spouse and to talk about how, how are how are we doing? How am I? How do you think I'm doing? Uh, another useful way is journaling where, you know, you can have honesty. The Puritans used to journal, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of them would always put in their wills once they died that the journals be burned. And the reason for that, it was actually kind of wise because they wanted to be really honest in those journals about their heart. And they were afraid that if if the journals were going to be preserved, that they would they would they would pull their punches. They would not be as honest about how they were doing. And then also keeping yourself here in prayer, watch and pray. Being taking inventory of your own spiritual condition and also then going once you've examined your condition to go and seek the Lord uh, in prayer. Let's pray together.